0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. So in Hollywood, there aren't that many people that you can really say you've been through the wars with, both professionally and personally, who are really like, you know, true friends. And um, today I'm sitting with one of the great producers in the entire business, a guy nominated for three Academy Awards for Best Picture, uh, and also the guy who really helped put Paul Thomas Anderson on the map and many other filmmakers. Uh, Michael DeLuca uh, has been uh, head of production or president of a couple of different movie studios, most notably uh, New Line in the 90s, and uh, then as a producer made a series of unbelievably successful movies and television shows and has just taken a job as the uh, chairman of MGM, back uh, back in the studio game. Again, we first met in 1997. Mike uh, Greenlit, developed in Greenlit, a uh, movie David and I wrote and directed called Knock Around Guys, and we have uh, never been out of each other's lives since. And I'm thrilled to get to talk to Mike, who is one of the smartest guys in the business. Mike, thanks for being here.
1: Brian, thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Right? Long time coming. <laughs> Thank you very much. So all right, I have a bunch of questions
0: because you're the second. I think the only other producer we've had on here is Jane Rosenthal, and
1: ah, um, oh, I was thinking about Jane recently because we did Wag the Dog together, and you know when when he just took out this Iranian general, they started doing Wag the Dog on TV, and I'm like, we did that. Yes, <laughs> not the I was the movie, not the
0: general. I was quoting uh, Wag the Dog over and over yeah. again that week. Oh, man, I love that movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so people don't really understand what producers do. So can you and. I have a lot of stuff about your career and, and, and your you know where you came from and how you didn't fit in and where you got to, but could you just for describe to people, because a lot of people, maybe their their idea of a producer is just from wag to dog. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> can you describe like a typical day as a producer, the kinds of problems you solve, the types of people you have to
1: deal with on all sides? Just give people an idea of what that means. Oh, sure. Well, you know, in mo- it's different in every case, but in most cases, it begins with the search for material or the search for a good idea or what moves you, you know, how can I articulate this to a writer and director. And, you know, that nascent stage that we all go through as, as producers, it could take the form of adapting an article or a book. Or I, in the case of Captain Phillips, you know, Dana Brunetti and I were watching the news story unfold on TV and just thought, what's going on in the lifeboat that the news can't show us? What are they saying to each other? And that began an odyssey to go. Well, So what happens when you get that? So you're, you're sitting there and you have that notion. Right. What's the next step? The next step is making sure he survived the ordeal. Uh, <laughs> sure. I mean, not to be crass, but if, if he didn't, it was going to be a Sundance movie. And because he survived, it's a Tom Hanks movie. But, you know... And your calculating Wait, now this yeah. is important, because this is
0: part of what makes you good at what you do. Yeah. You didn't just get swept away. So your first reaction is an emotional one.
1: You start, <laughs> right? You start to get swept away. Yes. But your second reaction is an intellectual one, right? It, 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 I feel terrible saying this, but yeah, there was a... a assessment of, gee, it's a certain kind of movie if it goes one way, it's a certain kind of movie if it goes another way. But the main thing is, please, God, let everyone be okay. But then after that, um, we really thought it was uh, movie worthy because it kind of captured our imaginations. So after an appropriate and respectful amount of time went by, we went about trying to get to to Richard Phillips and talk to him about a movie adaptation. Um, Incredibly gracious man, incredibly gracious family. And, uh, he, and so do you write like an email to that guy or to someone in his life? How, I mean, how do you do that? You know, I got to give Dana credit. Dana, Dana made the initial outreach and I forgot exactly how he did it, but he got us in front of Richard Phillips. And then you went and had a conversation with Richard Phillips? In Vermont, yeah. And um, he was a great guy. He said, I'm writing a book. I don't want to make a deal until the book is finished, but when I'm done, I will come back to you guys. And he did. He came to you. So then he came he to you came first. came when his
0: book was done. So what you did was you identified... A story, and then you found a way to be the first one to get the material.
1: Yeah, we found a way to get in front of him and make our case that we were a good. And, astu- and while that's happening, are you thinking of filmmakers? Uh, yet or not yet? We thought of actors first. And okay. when we when we when we met with a representative of the family, you know Dana and I as producers pitched, you know the the version that we never thought we could deliver, which was Tom Hanks. Like, we'll get Tom Hanks. to. No, but that's important. But you knew you also knew Tom Hanks, right? No, we were winging it. Um, Really? Yeah, we just thought, well, let's pitch them the the five-star Tiffany version of the movie in the best-case scenario. And, And we eventually landed the rights. And then on the way to developing the script, and I think we even had Billy Ray engaged on the screenplay, we got an incoming call from... Tom Hanks people, and it was the best news because we like, we didn't, we didn't lie. Retroactively, it turned out we were telling <laughs> it the truth. turned out you were right. You were going to get <laughs> yeah. Tom Hanks. But... And then Greengrass kind of found us also. You mean that was, Paul Greengrass made an incoming call to you? After, after Tom Hanks was attached.
0: And so was there then competition for the book, or were you able to swoop it up before anyone else was
1: We were involved? able – Richard Phillips was true to his words, so even though other producers were chasing it, he came back to us and gave us an opportunity to make it. And then case. you
0: go to a studio, and you say and to we the went studio, to, can you give us the money to
1: buy the book? Yes, my my uh, deal was based at Sony, and we went to Sony, and Dana and I had some trust with them because we had done Social Network previous to Phillips, and I had done Moneyball with Scott right. Reardon previous to Phillips, so they optioned the book for us and engaged Billy Ray. And as that's happening –
0: how many other things are you working on at the same time, because I want to get to like a little sure. bit of like what your typical day is because aren't you managing in various states
1: of development like seven or eight different projects? like how does that yeah, in your head you, that work in your head, you always kind of know there's a certain amount of projects you have to develop to get one produced, you know, so it's a little you bit mean of to a, get one made, yeah, yeah, like you know if you I think a really good ratio is five developed to get one one made one out of five, one out of four seems really productive. There are, at a studio level and a producer level, do you think that way? As, as a producer, I think that way. At a studio level, and maybe I was a bad studio executive, but I thought, gee, one out of 20 would be a good <laughs> ratio. It's even more of a volume business at the studios. But there are some producers I really admire, like, you know, I, I think there are some producers that that ratio is razor thin. Like I, I gotta believe Scott Rudin is three developed, three produced, you know, hits yes. the bullseye every time. Yeah, pretty much every time. Yeah.
0: And even four to one is an incredible sort I agree. of a ratio. Yeah. But how are you managing each of those projects, meaning all those five people, if it's five to one, think their movie's the one that's going to get made, right? (laughs) And you have to keep, because one thing you and I have talked about a lot off off of microphones is sort of the value of these long-term relationships. What do you think about in terms of what separates you in being able to keep the relationship, even as you're having to sometimes deliver Bad news, or right. half, you know, only half perfect information. How do you, how do you deal with that? You know,
1: I, I just think it's uh, as a, as a human thing. I think you owe people honesty and quick responses. I think writers, and I have attempted to write, and I write badly, but I, I. I mean, you did write and direct a movie. right? <laughs> I wrote, not you not direct, wrote a movie, di- yeah. not direct. Um, but I feel like writers are the last to learn any new information about their projects. It's, it, they're always an afterthought, and I feel for them. And So the idea of getting them information as quickly as possible, here's what's going on with your project, we're not going to continue, here's why, don't torture the process, rip the bandaid quickly. I think if you, if you can get people quick answers, and it be the truth, and do it with grace and dignity and respect, you can earn some repeat business.
0: So that's fascinating to me because that speaks to growth because I actually remember the moment you kind of came to this. It was around 1999 to 2000. I remember, I remember, I don't even know if you'll remember this, but uh, we were talking and and you said, I have to improve on something. Sometimes I don't return calls for bad news and I have to start doing it. And you did, like you did. How do you take stock of that shit? Because obviously you've done this a few different times in your life where you've looked and decided to change because it's hard to give bad news.
1: It's hard, yeah. I, uh, and you
0: used to be really bad at
1: it. Yeah, I have, I, I've since learned that um, in therapy that I have a particular set of issues that involve the lack of what they call a self-love piece. So I desperately want to be liked. I want, yes. I want validation from external sources, yes. which, which gets in the way of delivering bad news. If right. You want to, yeah. but, but it's counterintuitive because you're actually more well-liked if you do tell the truth but, and yes, deliver but, bad d- news. But, but all that primal stuff doesn't, right. doesn't filter so you actually were able to train yourself. With growth. I mean, it, you know, uh, you make a few mistakes a billion times and you start to learn some lessons. And also Jeffrey Katzenberg was a huge example for me when I worked at DreamWorks. He returned every single call. It didn't matter how long he was in the office. That, and he told us all, like, you do not leave a phone call unreturned. He's extremely professional. And, I, and his work ethic really rubbed off on me. And I guess that's around then, right? 2001 or something? Mm-hmm. Is that when you went or a I feel like there was some growth there.
0: <laughs> no, no, but I'm saying that's yeah. around when. It is you, around that time, yeah.
1: You decided,
0: like, no, I have to yeah. do this in a different way. Because a lot of us get, get like, um,
1: yeah. our habits become just, they take us over. Yeah. They really run us until, you know, we exert some will to find a better way. And do you, what do you do to try to
0: constantly do it? Is it just therapy? Like, do you meditate, do you journal? Like, how do you take stock during the course of your regular life?
1: Well, with, you know, with me, honesty is a big thing that I try to pay attention to. Um, Cause you know, in, in my youth, um, I was a people pleaser and a go along, say along to go along kind of a guy. And it caused some, you know, it caused some personal life problems and some professional problems, so just Practicing honesty, and it's so much about repetition, like building new neural pathways and building new muscle memory. So much can be accomplished aside from all the psycho babble and therapy stuff. Just doing some, doing something repetitively, like making a
0: decision to repetitively yeah.
1: do X. Yeah. You find actually makes makes X then easier and easier to just naturally. It's kind do. of like uh, the, I guess the the theory behind cognitive behavior therapy. Yes. It's, you know, act as if. You change your behavior, and your feelings will follow. So, even and have if, you found that to be true? I have found it to be true in my experience.
0: Yeah, I'm trying uh, to do that stuff with diet, um, right. getting off of like a train of thinking about dieting and just eating be- like Same and just eating yeah. better through like um, uh, sort of a cognitive behavioral, yeah. uh, dialectical it, behavioral therapy. Food is a
1: tricky one because you have to. To eat to really you know get it into a healthy relationship with food it has to not be a source of pleasure it just has to be sustenance and fuel and it's a hard right turn to make and <laughs> you need it so it, if food is very difficult but it is the kind of thing where you if you I mean the idea
0: the behavioral therapy idea of just grooving in these better pathways right. for a certain
1: number of yeah. days.
0: Listen, if you see me eating pizza,
1: don't <laughs> say anything to me. I've, that means it that, that day. Yeah. Um, but I've been I'm grateful. I've had some really good mentors who pointed the way towards better work habits. You know, Jeffrey was definitely one of them. Everybody at, at DreamWorks on on that level, like Spielberg and Katz and uh, and Geffen, they're operating at such a high level. Scott Rudin too, like he's so tunnel visioned about his time management and and getting results from the way he spends his time that they were great examples to learn well, from. Well, all right, I from. wanted to
0: ask you about Scott, and I, I have a it's a really particular question I think all of us can learn from. Collaboration's really hard for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And you were an A-list person in the business. You had been, you know, you'd left a job or gotten, you know, the way every, yeah. every executive gets fired, that's right. part of the job thing, right? They all gracefully decide to become producers. But, you know, we all know what all that stuff means. But you were an A-level figure in the business and ended up partnering a couple of times with Scott and... Most people I know who've – and Scott's the biggest producer in the business, the most, successful, you know, the most successful, most awards, and he's brilliant, right? Most people would have a really hard time letting – especially letting someone else take the lead uh, and feel like they had to fight for their um, – to be acknowledged publicly. To you know, How did you put yourself in a mindset of, well, I'm going to, like, learn from this guy and then – you know get what I can get like how did you think about all right i'm going to partner with a guy who's famous
1: for crushing
0: <laughs> but um so how how did you think about it how did you how did you make it work
1: you know i i think part of it is uh i'm i i think of myself as just a glorified fanboy like i'm so in love I'm with love the movies me too. and so scott's reputation for excellence or the movies he had produced preceded him in terms of me meeting him i was all set up to kind of kiss the ring and try to learn as much as I could from the guy. And I've never felt like I'm ever too old for, you know, mentorship. Or even if, if someone doesn't want to be my mentor, I'm going to assume the position of like, can I please learn from you? And I, at DreamWorks, I think our relationship began. There were a couple of projects he had that I tried to get done at DreamWorks that I wasn't successful in setting up. But I think Scott appreciated the attempts and we had a kind of a confluence of taste. So when I got to work with him, we already had a pre-existing relationship where we felt pretty comfortable with each other. And I felt like, you know, if I'm going to get to produce a movie with Scott Rudin, especially when he walks in the door with Aaron Sorkin, I felt like I'd won the lottery, right. like pinch me right now. So it was easy for me to, you know, allow Scott to... Because to, you had the book. Dana and I had the, had the book on Social Network. Right. You um, had Ben Mesrick's book, yeah, Social Network. Billionaires, yeah, Scott
0: said, Aaron and I want to do this with you. Yeah. But a lot of people would have been scared of that. Were you scared of it?
1: No, no. I, I thought this was a ticket to the Oscars, and it was. <laughs> you, right. Yeah. And how did it play out on a day-to-day basis, making the movie? Would you? Did you do a bunch of your normal producerial things? Um. Yeah, yes and no, because uh, Scott was lead producer, and he did he did a lot of the heavy lifting. Certainly, he ran development with Aaron. They have a very close relationship, as you can see. From, so he ran... You mean he helped develop the script with Aaron? He and Aaron worked together on, on the script, but Aaron... Aaron, uh, you know this draft. The draft he delivered was what we shot. I mean, it was pretty close to, to a shooting. You know, script. you sent it to me. I don't know. I have. Oh, I, I bet I'm in trouble. <laughs> you did. <laughs> I was just so proud of it. I, I could... called you and I, or I wrote. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, I have to see it. I have yeah. to see it. And
0: you sent it to me. And I, I remember reading it. I sat at my kitchen table. Now, this is you mm-hmm. have to understand this. Is before anybody, uh, like there was no movie, The Social Network. Mm-hmm. It, there was just a, you guys were, well, I remember what, part of what happened was you would ask me about Jesse, because I just made a movie with Jesse, Eisenberg. Oh, oh that's right. David and I had just that's made right. Solitary Man. That's right. And you uh, you wrote me or called me about Jesse, and I said, like, he's mm-hmm. the only. He's perfect. Mm-hmm. You were already going in that direction, obviously. But, like, I was like, he was the light to work with, or whatever. I don't, but then I was like, you got to send it to me. I have to read it. I have to read it. You sent it to me. And I remember sitting at my kitchen, t- kitchen counter, and just that first nine pages, and just going, like well, this is the best screenplay of the year. This might be the best screenplay i ever fucking read. I <laughs> read the whole thing in like 45 minutes as long it amazing, as it was. Yeah. It was a stunning thing. So yeah. like,
1: what was it like for you the first time you read it? I, I literally, I read it standing up in my kitchen. Like, like I couldn't, I, I literally I, couldn't put it down. You did. It. And I think I even said to Dana, or I, I definitely said to my wife at the time, I was like, we're going to win the Oscar for best screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> it that was, must have been it unreal. It was glorious, glorious read. And the genius of Scott Rudin is... David Fincher was not an obvious choice because, you know, if you read that screenplay and then you ask someone, hand me a list of directors we should go to with the screenplay. You'd go to Rob Re- like old Rob Reiner. Yeah, or, or Mike Nichols or, you know, that, yes. that type of director. And Scott had the idea to bring it to Fincher. And I had worked with Fincher before on Seven when I was an executive. And I, and I didn't have the idea to go to Fincher. It was Scott. And that's what he... And then did you go to Fincher? You... Because you had the relationship? I or think, did... Well, No, I think Scott called him and got him the screenplay, and then we all had a meeting. But it was an ingenious choice, and it it could not have worked out better, except for when King's Speech beat us at the Oscars. <laughs> yes, but Aaron did win, right? Aaron won, yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. Um, and Social Network is definitely the, the better film. So that... Was that, in a way, one of the best experiences you oh, had? Oh, for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: One of the things you've always been good at is being kind of ahead, recognizing a filmmaker the movie before everybody else does, which is a big advantage f- for you, I think. Well, you were talking earlier about sitting with a couple of new filmmakers. But talk through the Paul Thomas Anderson Boogie Nights thing because you you know Paul had made Sydney Heart Eight the first movie, and then had this incredibly ambitious thing and and you figured out how to get that movie made and and to make it. What did you see? How did you know that this was going to be one of the you know, dominant filmmakers?
1: Well, I, lo- I mean, I really loved um, Heart 8, which, which, which was Sidney originally. Uh, I just loved it. I thought the performances. I mean, every, every, everything that we all think about that movie, I felt. Yeah, I love that movie. And then yeah. I had a really good relationship with his agent at the time, John Lesher, who has since gone on to be first an executive and now an Oscar-winning producer. Right. Um, I, I had passed on Kids, the movie Kids, and John Lesher represented... Larry uh, Clark or... Harmony Harmony Kareem. And I said, I regretted it, because I thought the movie was audacious, at least. And I said, if there's anything this this cool that comes along again, don't let me pass on it. So it was in that context that he presented me with Boogie Nights. And uh, it read like the movie screens. Like, it really... He wrote it like he directed it. So you can imagine reading it, you're, like, seeing that movie in your mind. And I just thought, you know... We're an independent studio. We need to be bold and audacious to distinguish ourselves in the marketplace. And to, you know, is this theater worthy? Are people going to get excited about going to a theater and seeing this? It was before there were all these other options, you know. Of course. For entertainment. And it just felt like that was a good bet. It was going to be budgeted in the teens. He was talking about a really compelling ensemble. And it just felt like it was marketable, that this was something bold and audacious. Where
0: does... Uh where does self-doubt come in? Do you... do you Are you able to tune out? Because in the work environment, I've seen you remain very calm, very focused. When people are yelling around you, you're able to sort of like dispassionately get everyone laughing along and focused. It's one... You know... But when you then take a movie like Boogie Nights or Seven and you test it and you score in the 30s or the 40s right. or along the way, your boss is saying, this seems fucking crazy to me. How do you not let self-doubt because a lot of movie executives the moment someone above them goes well if it fails it's on you they go like oh well i don't want to make it anyway i was just putting it in front of you to give you the choice (laughs) right but you somehow have like the courage of your convictions do you never feel self-doubt in those moments
1: um i'm gonna word it slightly differently i have self-doubt all the time so it's not like it comes in i live with it (laughs) so i just kind of put it i deal with it as a chronic condition yes it's a human yeah um I felt a responsibility to Paul, so my I, in these situations, and I had an, a similar situation with Austin Powers, the first Austin Powers, and how that test screened. Oh, it also test screened really badly. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I have a mixed, I have a, I have a bias about uh, test screening. I really think it's a valuable tool, but for certain kinds of movies, I think it, on a movie that's a curveball movie, that's slightly disturbing too. Like putting pencils in the hands of a focus group and asking to rate,
0: especially right after you've seen is, something that rips yeah, your
1: guts out, like like uh, Fight Club. You're asking you know? for trouble. Yeah, I had I had really I had passionately advocated for not test screening that movie but they did it anyway. Which book nights Yeah. And I just didn't have the the the, the... the juice at that studio. To... But the
0: self-doubt that you have all the yeah. time. You how do you not give
1: in? To... So these are these oh,
0: crucial moments in yeah. in getting these things made. I'll and... tell you
1: it's uh, it, the responsibility I feel to the film, the p- responsibility I felt to you and David or the responsibility yeah. I felt to Paul. That keeps me from melting down because I feel like I can't fall down on the job. I've promised these storytellers that I will be there for them. And it just keeps you, uh, you know, focused because you don't want to let people down, especially people that you've said, hey, come bring your story to my studio and and I'll take care of you.
0: Right. So that and and even in the in the green lighting process, you've already in your mind when you've decided I'm going to try to green light something. You feel like you've already committed to the filmmaking
1: yeah, in some way. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the, being a student of film history, and you'll probably know this, but um, the Mike Medavoy reign at the original UA, yes, and then what he did at Orion, or the John Calley run at Warner Brothers from 1970 to 1980. These weren't executives, and they weren't, and they didn't have departments of executives that, you know, were rewarded things to death or noted things to death. They were they designed the box for the filmmakers to be in. And then yeah. if the box was agreed on and, and you didn't color outside the lines, you were allowed to yeah. make your movie. This is the kind of movie we're agreeing to make. Yeah. This is the general budget. This is the
0: kind of cast I need to make that happen. Yes. Now, I believe in you,
1: so go make the thing right. happen. That's how I prefer to do the job as opposed to you know, being in the trench with the filmmaker, noting the thing to death. And,
0: but I've been at yeah. movie studios when movies test bad, and I know the kind of panic that sets in. So walk me through your, at the Austin Powers screening, <laughs> and I know that the guy who was your boss, who I, I – have great affection for Bob Shea right. and the late Michael Lynn. But Bob did react to numbers because Bob came up distribu- – I mean, I, you know. Sure. So um, Austin Powers happens. You test it. It tests badly. I know what happens to marketing people. I, everyone starts blaming everybody else. Right. What, just really, like, try to remember. What did you do? Like, actually, what did you do to keep people – Moving forward.
1: Right. Well, I had a visceral reaction that night because I, I felt like marketing had managed to find the only test audience that had never seen a James Bond movie. So it, <laughs> to them, it was like a foreign language film, um, much less in like Flint or any of the other things Jay Roach was referencing. But the audience laughed. It wasn't like they were silent. I thought the audience was laughing with the movie. And I, I laughed from beginning to end. So I had a personal stake in thinking that movie was funny. So when you get the numbers, I had a visceral like, I don't believe it. I just don't you believe, just said that, I just right said, I don't believe it and Mike Myers was you know worried I mean he you know he was worried that it was gonna uh you know harm the movie with the studio or he he was disappointed that the numbers weren't so high because sometimes with comedies you do get a nice audience reaction and then you stick the pencils in the hand and then everybody's a critic and suddenly the numbers are lower than. These were bad numbers. Fifties are bad. Like fifties is like the movies. Yeah, fifties a movie back then might not even get released. Back then, if
0: you didn't get released, there was no streaming. That's true. Yeah,
1: I think I think um, your audience probably knows. uh, You want to be in the. Look, if you're in the '90s in the top two boxes, which is excellent, and very good, you're golden. If you're in the '80s, you're golden. '70s, all oh, work in progress. '60s, you start to sweat, and '50s, is yeah. straight to video. Let give an example.
0: Uh, uh, Rounders tested a '66 and a '68. Like, right. so I lived through with that bubbly moment. Yeah. We were safely going to be in theaters, but it was like, right? And it's a drama,
1: like, so you know, they well, should, well, yeah. yeah, of
0: course, yeah. It was a drama written in almost, a, I mean, almost a foreign language. Right. So, I, <laughs> David and I didn't expect right. that it would test well, but that's you know, an example of one right.
1: that. I remember, but I've been in bad ones. Yeah.
0: But so what do you say to the other people is what I'm saying. How well, my you... first concern
1: was my. I, I said I said to Mike, don't worry about it. The movie's funny, and I'm not counting this test screening. I just said, we're not counting it. We'll do another test screening. You were president, but you did have people above you, right? Yeah, but I, I will say in this case, um, there was a fellow, Mitch Goldman, who was doing distribution and marketing at the time, and he liked the movie. So I didn't have a big you know, fight there. And we also didn't have the option to not release that movie. Like, we needed to release it because we needed movies. And, you know, New Line was, at that time, still independent. When you show up the next morning and everyone's judging, because,
0: like, you know, you have to walk through the office after you had a movie that tested in the 50s. Right. That you greenlit. Yeah. You were the genius who said yes. Right. Well. (laughs) No, you know, that's what, but that's what everyone thinks, right? In the thing. They're like, this, all right. And, And do you then walk into people's office, do you put a smile on your face and go like, I don't care, I don't believe it? You try to
1: rally the troops, like it's gonna you be do? okay, don't worry about it, we're gonna fix it, it's gonna be great. Like Do they believe you? Nobody believes you, no. Oh, okay. Nobody believes you till the opening weekend. <laughs> right. They still think <laughs> yeah. you're fucking nuts. And you know, so many times marketing, you know, can't wait to like point the finger at production. That's right. And, what and I'm conversely, saying. production if if doesn't production doesn't always own that they made a, a poor movie and then they start blaming marketing, and that's not fair either. You know, when you when you have a movie that does, you know, uh, that Under- is a good movie to test screen and it tests in like the the 40s and 50s you might have made a bad movie nobody means to but oh yeah it's I, not was marketing at a, I was at a terrible yeah. screening with you of a mike myers movie
0: once we went to get you asked me to come that was when i and yeah, not I mean, talk about <laughs> it, but like i went to a terrible mike myers screening once right. and there was no saving that movie and right. we all knew at that time i mean that was different right that was a night i mean that's another thing a producer i'm mm. so i'm so fascinated by your longevity and your ability to keep relationships with people through ups and downs, right? We went through a movie that like almost didn't get released together, Knockaround Guys. Mm-hmm. You gave our first movie mm-hmm. as, as directors, but we got even tighter through that.
1: Experience. I think you find out you really find out who people are in times of adversity. And Gary, you know Gary Ross, who um, I made Pleasantville with, yes, great, great Oscar-winning screenwriter and and now director for a long time, said something to me that I thought was so wise. once. so he was consoling me after I'd done something really obviously stupid <laughs> in terms of a movie. And he said, Mike, everyone has flops, not everyone has hits. You know, you're never going to churn out nothing but, like, hits after hit, unless you're Kevin Feige or Pixar. Right, right. <laughs> so not, I, I learned from him, don't sweat the, the misses, they're going to happen, but enjoy the hits. Like, don't, don't take away the enjoyment of the hits by always sweating the other shoe dropping.
0: Yeah, I mean, how long can you personally really enjoy a hit for? A night?
1: Hollywood's a very what have you done for me lately I mean, town. But I mean even internally, the way you are yeah. built.
0: I mean if you make a hit,
1: does it last for you well, for the week? Do you feel good no. for a week? First of all, my my personality type is such that when we, I make a hit, it's it's a other people's success. I was just along for the ride. Right, I, I immediately insane. start to I immediately start to minimize my role. And then when it's a flop, I own you it. You own like, the flop and oh, oh, you're fault. Like yeah. you made you made the
0: fuck up, right? <laughs> yeah. But we'll yeah. work on that. That's
1: still I'll work, on work that. in yeah. progress.ing But
0: so, like, the night, like the night that we saw that terrible yeah. movie, and I remember walking outside, and it was like drizzling out. You <laughs> we were, you were like, I, I know. And I go, dude, you know. And but then, like, how do you put your arms around the filmmaker and say, like, okay, well, we'll get the next one, like, and keep
1: the relationship going? Sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes you know, it's it's everyone leaves with hurt feelings and confusion, and and even if they don't, even if they like you. You're a visual reminder of the worst experience of their life, so pe- it, people retreat to neutral corners. Well, that's true too. Yeah, it is,
0: and it's also tricky in this game. I think. I wonder what you think.
1: It's hard to know, like, for ten years, if the movie was a good movie. But look, you know, I'll I'll tell you on that movie, I laughed. I mean, it it I think it got a twenty three on Rotten Tomatoes, or maybe even less. But I'm in that seventeen percent or twenty three percent that liked it. So I can't. So. At least I feel I can I can look the people in the face and go like I thought it was funny, but that was a case where the t- the taste did not agree with me. The the mark the the audience but did not agree keep, with me. Right. Do you- But I can't second guess. I can't make decisions based on the audience like they're a separate entity. I just go where my taste goes, and sometimes the world agrees with me, and sometimes it doesn't.
0: Did that take you a while to sort of get comfortable in that position, or did you always sort of? Well,
1: when I was young, I didn't even, I didn't even know, you know, the difference between me and the audience. And I was just doing things that appeal to me and and hope for the best.
0: We'll talk about that because yeah. you were very young when you got in these positions. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about, one thing you've said over and over to me, and I'm sure you've talked about it publicly some, but you did not have a, a socially productive childhood,
1: right? <laughs> no.
0: So... What, is that when you found movies, or did you find them at NYU? Like, just talk a little bit about how you can, because you're—I mean—one of the funny—you're known as like one of the cooler people in Hollywood. You know, your dating exploits in your twenties were legendary, but in your in your thirties, but like, can you talk a little bit about the perspective that you come to
1: all this from, which has sure. to do with
0: who you were growing up?
1: Sure. My, I mean, my my uh, my route to this industry is uh, was escape. Like, I. Was a very kind of introverted, lonely child. Uh, Horn rimmed glasses, never combed my hair. Just a, a pathetic write off in terms of like any just a just a, a, a not a, a, ton a kid of in the world. Not a ton of yeah, not a ton of friends. Um, and I I lo- I I would try to get lost in fiction. Like my I fell in love with storytelling at first through comic books. Became a huge comic book collector. I still am. And um, my hangout was the library. Um, I would find these 1,000-page books like Tale Two Cities or Les Miserables where, that would keep me in the, in the library for hours and, you and hours. you weren't raised in, in privilege either. It's not like you were a privileged kid private no. school going to thing, right? You were raised... Pretty, pretty blue-collar. My dad was an electrician for Con Edison, the utility company right. here. And my mom worked in uh, the supermarket chain, Walbaums. But um, there was the local comic book store in Canarsie, Brooklyn, where I grew up. I right. lived there. And uh, I started watching old movies on WPIX and WOR, the syndicated TV stations, and just fell in love with storytelling and movies and comic books, like anything fictional that I could escape you know, my my life uh, into, that's that's really where I fell in love with all this stuff. Right. And we had the local movie theater, the Canarsie movie theater. And what were you like at school? Did you have a lot of friends? I, I had other geek friends, you know, like we yeah, were the Yeah, but nerdy. before
0: geeks were cool, but before it was like a... Way
1: before, yeah. <laughs> right, and I'm saying you guys were yeah. considered losers yeah. probably. There was but... one particular kid who liked to punch me in the stomach on the, whenever I walked back from the comic book store, the new issues would come out on Wednesday and they'd have a brown bag with my name on it with all the new issues. Uh. And, you know, I'm in my parka in the winter with the hood on and the horn glasses walking the three blocks to my house. And there was one kid in particular who'd love to sandbag me. And I just think about the movies now and every single – a-list movie every blockbuster is a comic book adaptation I really feel like it's Revenge of the Nerds on a major well scale. but also
0: that moment is such a great superhero origin story right you go <laughs> to the
1: comic book stories in the snow
0: right in the snow and then you're walking with your books and, I, and the guy decks you yeah. I mean that's your opponent for the rest of your like right. do you ever google search that guy I don't know. Forgive, I've forgiven I've had
1: the therapy I forgive everyone it's general amnesty I don't think you amnesty. really forgive that guy no way I would never forgive that right. guy you really you think you forgave that person maybe I haven't googled a, once I haven't googled once you know, we might have to Google before this is over. Not on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But the, but it, it was great to have those. It was great to have the comic book store. It was great to have the library. I had some several teachers that were great uh, interventionists for me. Did you do well in school? I did well in school. Yeah, I was an early reader, and I was an advanced reader. So eventually, that led to. So some, school recognized that you were smart. Y- y- so that was a place you were doing okay. Yeah, I don't know how smart I was. I think it was the. I think the reading just gave me um, some skills that allowed me to skip. I skipped eighth grade. Right. So I went to college a year early. And
0: I imagine that was, like, a, both good and bad, right? Because you were, like, the youngest and geeky. I mean, you've told me. I was me terrified, yeah. <laughs> that it was hard at first in yeah, college. Yeah, yeah. Where'd you go? NYU. I
1: went to, to Tisch for... And did you know you were... At that time, you wanted to be a filmmaker? I wanted to be a writer at that time. Um, a screenwriter. A screenwriter, yeah. And I remember looking for internships in my junior year, and I really wanted to intern at Saturday Night Live. I, I, had, I had watched every episode of the show since 1974. Right. You know, like, I didn't miss it, an episode. I worship, I still worship it. Me too. And they were in reruns, and I saw a card for New Line Cinema, and I also love horror films, so I'd seen Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984. Which and, New Line had made. Yeah, so that's what got me that internship, and that led to my first job. You applied job. to
0: both internships, and you got No, reg- there, wa-
1: there was no SNL, because it was in reruns. There was no internship available, so I took the New Line one. And so what was your first job at New Line? What year? Is this junior year? This was junior year, yeah. Uh, receptionist. <laughs> Basically, they put me at the front desk answering phones. And then, you know, you're the copy boy, so it's a lot of Xeroxes. and. Yeah,
0: so I, I want to I get go granular. How did you – like, you know, Tom Zutat tells the story of he was, like, the lowest person in the warehouse, but he got the Motley Crue record early and brought that in to his bosses and was like, we have to make this. Like, what was the – how did you get from there – because you were, what, how, what age were you named, like, head of production?
1: 27.
0: Right. So that's yeah. amazing. Like, nobody's 27 in that job. So, talk about what happened.
1: Uh, I started script reading. So, my, they asked you to, or they, you? I asked to. <laughs> I asked to, and uh, this woman, Janet Grillo, who ran the story department, gave me a chance. And then some of the executives, uh, Sarah Risher, who was running production at the time, they liked my coverage. So, so explain what that is. So, it's like a book report on a script you know, basically you write a summary of the plot of a script and then your, your comments are kind of your analysis of what you thought of it and what you and think. And so you
0: started doing that like as extra work basically
1: when you were For there. free. Yeah. As an intern. You just said, give me that work. Yeah.
0: And you started, did, who recognized that you started to be right about stuff? Janet,
1: or? Yeah. Janet was really an earlier proponent of, of at least my, my story sense. And, that you like got it kind yeah. of.
0: And how many scripts do you think you read like that first year? Oh man, hundreds. Right, yeah, hundreds, yeah. Hundreds, hundreds, right, yeah. And like, without even knowing, well, did you do it intentionally to get the education, or were you trying to work your like? What made you ask for the scripts?
1: I wanted to, I, because I had an interest in writing. I thought I had read an anecdote about Orson Welles. You know, he had only worked in radio, but before he made Citizen Kane, uh, according to the legend, he screened every movie and absorbed like how movies got made. And I thought, well, maybe if I read as many scripts as I can get my hands on, the, the skill set or the, at least the structural knowledge will seep through me by osmosis. Which happened, I mean, that kinda happened, right? And so how long until you were off that receptionist uh, I did, I, Well, I had to graduate. Did you, so did you go graduate? <laughs> I was four credits shy. I was four credits so grad- so graduating. Because you
0: were doing all this was, stuff?
1: Because I was at New Line. I, I just flaked on classes and stuff.
0: And, and did you, so did
1: you just get totally
0: seduced by the world of the film business? Did you I find did. your people? Um, like, did, I did you feel like you found your
1: people there? Yeah, there, there was, a, there was a, a set of people that were in their mid-20s that kind of adopted me as a mascot, um, you know, that, that I hung out with a lot and kind of learned a lot of the business from. And how did you keep your sanity? Well, I was a kid, I mean, you know, I, I was just about grabbing more and more work you know that then then and, and learn as much of the business as i could and i kind of worked my way up from uh in, unpaid intern to story editor to director of development to vp of development like at some point they moved me to la and when was the first time you read something and flagged it and they
0: acquired like and they went oh let's acquire this what was the first one um
1: or even what time period i'm trying to remember i i have a f- I, I fear the first one they acted on might have been Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Like, I did not have an auspicious beginning. <laughs> right. But it was something. But you rec- – whatever. Yeah. you You flagged that and you were like, we should make this movie. I think the first thing that I did that for that worked was deep cover. This, this, oh, wow. This I love that movie. cop movie deep cover. Yeah. I saw the movie in the theater. Oh, you did? Good for you. hundred percent saw that movie in the mm-hmm. theater. I,
0: like – uh Maybe I was in, co- I think college, but we're the same age. I don't know. You think did that happen while you were in college? You think or just no? That after? was after. That was after I was so a paid employee, a young person. Yeah. And all.
1: I remember seeing the movie in the movie theater. Mm-hmm.
0: Actually worth seeing. Yeah. Great performance. I think I was in L-
1: L.A. by that time. Fishburne. Fishburne, Bill Jeff Duke, Goldblum. And Bill Duke, and Bill Duke is Duke in direct, there. Bill Duke directed. Oh, so Bill Duke directed it. And I knew Bill Duke yeah, was involved in that movie. And Fishburne, Charlie Martin Smith, and Jeff Goldblum. Yes. So you read that script? I read that script. Henry Bean, great screenwriter. Uh, Henry's a great screenwriter. Internal Affairs, The Believer. Uh, it was a script by Henry Bean, and uh, it was a great experience. We had, I think, the first... Um, single from Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre, 187, was on that soundtrack. And that was a Toby Emmerich special, the, now the head of Warner Brothers. But he was he was music at New Line at the time.
0: The uh, the movie business is so weird. I, a few years ago, I think you might have even been in some way around this one, Henry Bean had written that. Were you involved in the Juliet? I was not. Okay, but the, it, was at, so, it was at two studios. I think it was at Sony It was at Sony yeah. and at um, Regency. Yeah, it was a legendary script. Yeah. And Henry had written it and then they asked Dave and me to rewrite it. And uh, we read Henry's script and we called everybody and we said, listen, this is, you should just make Henry's, what are you doing? And I called Henry and I said, like, uh, they want us, like, do you want, I, I respect you too much. And he was like, no, I want the movie to get made. If, let's keep, whatever will keep the ball rolling. Right. So then Dave and I gave it a shot, but we couldn't, you, you actually couldn't improve on what... Henry did, He he's, that guy's so good at this. I agree, yeah, just a great craftsman. He really knows yeah. what the fuck he's doing as a yeah. writer, and and still I think there are people, I don't know how you feel about this, but don't you ever get that thing where you read a script and you can see the movie that will result from the words on the page, but all these other people want everything spelled out, and yeah. isn't part of your job as the producer to help the network, the studio understand? Yeah. That, well, without you know,
1: ruining it, at a certain point, all taste is subjective, and all you can do is tr- is give, offer your opinion. When you're the producer, I think, you know, the authorship of a movie sometimes can shift so much between if it's a writer producer yes. who is kind of an auteur writer producer, they might exert some influence over a director. If it's an auteur director who's coming in, they might exert some influence over the screenplay. Um, I'm certainly I don't have a degree in storytelling. I'm just a fan. You know, I if i have suggestions and i'm solicited i'll i'll make them but i kind of i i feel like it's better left in the hands of experts how do you adjudicate that
0: stuff mm-hmm. do you go with whoever's like got the creative mojo for that particular project like will you try to say to an author director once in a while i think you should really read that draft because it's a strong draft or
1: do you just leave it in their hands you know, it so depends on the mix of people. Sometimes the, if, and the different chair you're sitting in. As a producer, yeah, all oh, the different chairs. Sometimes sure. my job is to keep the train on the track and not let the director and the studio kill each other over something and be peacemaker. Sometimes someone is being peacemaker between me and the studio. When I'm a studio exec, sometimes I'm being peacemaker between the writer and the director. Like it, it shifts so much picture by picture. It's good to have a peacemaker though in the process. Sometimes. And do you always? Do you find that you want that role? I like troubleshooting because I feel like that is a management skill that doesn't require talent in terms of artistic talent. (laughs) Well, okay, but this is the thing, right? So you're
0: 27, you have taste. Your taste is starting to get recognized. You're put in this job of head of promotion, head of production. You weren't, you know, Bob and Michael were ultimately green lighting, but you had a lot of sway with the green lights. You could convince them at a certain budget level that they would do it. How did you learn the other piece of it, which is managing people? Because that is
1: hard, isn't it at first? Trial and error. I mean, it, I, I guess because I was a quiet kid growing up, I had a, I had certain muscle memory to listen and observe. Um, in Brooklyn, especially Canarsie, if I didn't want to get beat up, I had a case of situation. Is that corner safe? Who's on that oh. corner? Like what, you just kind of get a spidey sense about which block can I walk down without getting pushed in the bushes. And in adult life, you know, it's, you can recall it and an ability to, I call it case the joint, but there's, don't speak first, let people talk, listen to everything and speak with a meaningful contribution at the end. And sometimes my my brain races ahead of my mouth and I do speak first and often I regret it. And I've never regretted hanging back and being a little cautious.
0: So that's all some of the best advice anyone's ever given on this show. (laughs) (laughs) Go back and like, listen to that again. Yes. Keeping that in mind, and you're you are you're good at that um, throughout your life I've seen you do it in meetings, and I think you're really good at it but talk a little bit about the and and this isn't about sobriety like I know you're a sober person, but there were years in your twenties where you partied really hard, everybody did in Hollywood right. then. What do you think it is that about that world that sort of seduces people into living the way that the easy rider guys did.
1: You know, I I feel like it happens in other businesses, so I'm not sure it's You do as I, like in the same way it does in Hollywood? I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm trying to spread the blame a little <laughs> bit. I feel like if you're in a company town and it's an it's a I think it's an age and an access to capital and money thing. You know, I feel like if you're in your 20s and you're in a a, a jet stream of a social life in an industry that subsidizes you whether it's Wall Street or Hollywood or auto you know, makers in Detroit. There, there are certain temptations, especially at that age, that can get the better of you. You know, and then I, I only know my perspective. Like I was bringing to it a lot of childhood trauma and some pain, and if you don't have any knowledge of how those things can affect you, um, and I've since learned uh, it can be a dangerous combination when you're carrying emotional pain you're not aware of, and it's. It's eating at you, but you can't even articulate what it is because you haven't had any therapy. You can't recognize it You can't it for recognize that. it. You can't recognize it for that. And then you introduce intoxicants. Like you think you're just going out for a good time, but then the in- intoxicants meet the emotional pain and suddenly you feel better. That's where I think addiction happens because you're suddenly, this burden you've been carrying since childhood that you really don't understand has went away. And, and you, you didn't have that release as a young person, right? You didn't. No. I, I, I'll be honest with you. So my father was an alcoholic right? and for a long time I, I felt like I'll never be you. I'll never do that. And I was sober till I was tw- really 23. I just That's held- amazing, right? You'd never really had a drink till yeah. you 23. because I swore I would not become him. And of course, there's textbooks written. I became exactly him and I, I couldn't hold the line anymore. I was so socially awkward and, and terrified of social situations. Right. And so you you and then you had to do the work of figuring that out, which came a lot later. Unfortunately. How were
0: you so able to compartmentalize and be so successful when that was going on? Do you think? You must have thought about this a little. Cause it's amazing.
1: I think um, it wasn't it wasn't an everyday thing. It was a binge thing. It was mostly weekends, and I would I guess youth was on my side too. Like, you know, I could go out. You could rebound. I could rebound and. Uh, and function, you know, and it's a progressive disease. So as I got older and it got worse, the rebounds get, were harder to come by and there were more consequences. Um, I think I was just accidentally helped by my youth and that it did, it was progressive with me. It got progressively worse as the years went on.
0: Do you think the fact that you
1: had built genuine
0: relationships helped in all that stuff in terms of like, be, because I, seeing the way people rallied around you various times, I. Right. I how I guess this is a question. How consciously did you build a community of artists and friends, and how much was it just an instinctive thing that happened?
1: It, I think it was mostly instinctive because from an early age, I was comforted by storytellers. I just was. Right. So you mean you just like that's who you were just drawn to. That's just what I was drawn to. For that was my first form of self-medication, kind of in a way. It just in the. It, I remember once, not to get too digressive, but you can. I. I, the first time I toured the Vatican Art Museum and was looking at all these Renaissance paintings, and the tour guide was explaining, before people could read, this is how stories were told. And they were describing some of the paintings and the meanings of some of the Michelangelos and the Raphaels. And and there was, some of the paintings were particularly comforting, the stories the artists were trying to tell. And I thought, my God! People have been rallying around storytellers to ease their pain since the dawn of time, probably. And I felt like I was part of a storytelling tradition, even in my own little insignificant way. So when I was in Hollywood with you guys and the people that I was forming relationships with, I think the friendships happened because I was so happy sitting at your feet and hearing about the creative process and hearing about movies and stories. And I think you all could feel I was sincere. So, I think that formed the basis of great working relationships. Yeah, we were and great also, I mean, we were the same age and found the same yeah. stuff funny.
0: And because David and I were not partiers, we were definitely good people to have dinner with before, like, right. um, the rest of like, <laughs> life happened. Right. But And, and we liked the same movies. I mean, we just liked watching stuff yeah. together. But I, it, it is amazing the way you are able, I mean, as part of it, what, what is it you look for? I remember once. Um, You know, I'm cursed with this memory. I remember every conversation I ever had. (laughs) But I remember once we were talking about a director, and I was kind of running down his movies and saying they were shitty, and they were shitty. And you were like, yeah, but that guy's very talented. And I said, well, what do you mean? And you said, you're you're looking at things too narrowly. You may not think his talent is in the movie you're watching, but if a guy's able to get a movie made over and over again and collect a bunch of people, that's a kind of talent. And to ignore that is ignoring a lot of what the business, like a lot of what this is. And you were like, so I'm interested. And you said to me that, and you were, like, I'm interested in what that is. Like, I want to know <laughs> right. what
1: that talent is. Right. So it does seem like you've always been drawn. Well, I've always been curious. Like I, I was, I'm tremendously curious about your partnership with David, and it, it looks so wonderfully supportive and brotherly, and I'm envious of it. And I was curious about Scott and how he worked, and I, I've never not been curious about a, a creative person's process. What is it about a script? How Quickly, when you're reading something,
0: do you know you're interested?
1: I mean, pretty quickly. I, I ten pages. I think five pages, kind of. Me too. Yeah, but I sometimes I dutifully finish things because I feel like I owe it to the person. But but you know, like you know, you get you know. that feeling yeah. pretty quickly of like, yeah. oh, I'm in the hands of something.
0: This yeah. woman is really good at this. Yeah, this is going to be great. And how do you decide when you think somebody can be a first time director? Because like a lot of people who are listening to this, yeah. they have their script, right. they have their idea. What what's that process like like I think you made Andrea Birloff's first movie right Yes yeah
1: and so how Screenwriter turned director Screenwriter how does that
0: decision get made for you For me it's always
1: been like an in-person um, you know conversation like uh, there's filmmakers can articulate the movie they're going to make and it and I'm a sucker for kind of visual language and I remember when David Fincher came in after Alien 3 and wanted to make 7 as his next movie. Yes. It was one of the best verbal pitches I ever sat through. Like, he articulated the whole movie from beginning to did end. Did he
0: come in with Andrew Kevin Walker's script? No. Or did you have it? Oh, he, no, we had it. And we I know looking, David Cab, yeah. Andrew Kevin Walker gave it to David Cap, who somehow got it to Hollywood or something. I right? got it,
1: I actually got it in turnaround from a company called Penta back in the day. This movie. How did you, so tell this story. How did yeah. you get it? What happened? Who sent it to you? Do you remember? I don't remember how we got it as a company, but there was a there was a woman named Janice Chaskin at New Line. Her husband wrote the second Nightmare on Elm Street. David Chaskin. She presented me with the script, and said, "This isn't turnaround from this company, Penta." And I read it, and I'm like, "This is great. We got to do this." You felt right away. Right away, it. yeah. And right it was, away. It
0: was Andrew Cameron- Candy Walker? Walker. And he, was he well known then, or no? Was his because that was his first, cause no. that was his first that script, was, yeah, right?
1: Yeah, I, I think that was his first big um, calling card, and and then you were on a director hunt, and then and then we were on a director hunt, and I think I think the Brad Pitt interest was pre was there before David, because I think. Brad Pitt's agent told me he's interested in David Fincher directing, and I think it was under those auspices that David came in to meet with me. And then, what happened in the meeting with David? What he, did he do? He verbally pitched the movie he shot. It was like the way *Boogie Nights* read. Like he just articulated the movie, and I was sitting there, like in just in rapture. You mean he took he took you through like the whole movie? Yeah, like just pitching how he would execute that script. And he said, that, "I think it was from Dave, somehow, I think we didn't have the draft with the head in the box, and then." Someone told me there was another draft with a head in the box, and I don't know if it was David or Andy himself, but we got a hold of that, and that was clearly the one to make.
0: Oh, so one of those guys said, no, 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 yeah. there's another draft.
1: Yeah, because at Penta, it was developed with a director named Jeremiah Chechik, who did National Empire. I know Pacific. Jeremiah. I know <laughs> Jeremiah. <laughs> who went on actually to make serial killer movie Copycat with Sigourney Weaver. Well,
0: Jeremiah, who, because he'd had one big famous movie that did very poorly, I think he, didn't he make Scrooged, maybe? oh no no he didn't but he made some I think he made Uh, a Bill Murray movie that didn't work yeah I forget which one he did he came and directed two episodes of like the first TV thing David and I ever made oh okay and he crushed it and everyone was like you shouldn't use this guy because he's had these big failures yeah and um
1: he was great weirdly somehow like dialed in and, and great can I just say I think it's really unfair I think the industry judges directors by their worst movie they do and producers get off the hook we're, we're judged by our best movie and it's not fair <laughs> yes well I
0: would say particularly yeah. like women directors and people of color like I often think about Karin Kusama who I think is a one of the great incredible directors. talent yeah and she made one you know her, her first movie if a dude had made Girl Fight that dude would work forever yeah and Karen had to go into TV. She had to do all sorts of stuff. And now everybody
1: knows she, yeah. she's incredible. I'm part of um, actually an organization called Reframe that is seeking to establish gender parity behind the camera. You know, just to correct that imbalance. Well, and, yeah, that's and, awesome. And erase that double. standard. We had
0: Karen do a couple episodes of the show. Karen and great. She's been on the podcast and she she can do. She knows she's standing off for as many episodes of the right. show. But she now is doing mm-hmm. pilots and features. But I do look at it and it is like directors who are not don't fit the the sort of white male thing get much harder. Time getting more movies made I yeah
1: think. there's a little double strand that has to get erased well, the blame is
0: you know I mean the, the whole idea of the way people are hot or cold it's another thing I want to ask you about one thing I've noticed is that many people in and again I want to know how conscious you are of this like Dave and I over the 23 or 4 years we've been doing this there have been times we've been super hot Times have been super cold. There was never a time we, you wouldn't – there was never a time you were, like, coming to New York and not taking us to dinner, no matter what. Right. Same token, you know, when DreamWorks ended, I remember we were, like, the first dinner that you had, when, and it was great to get to buy you a meal finally. You bet. Uh, at Mateo's, I remember we went. Mm. But – and this isn't to, like, valorize you. I just want to understand it how you see the thing differently than so many people. Because from our shoes, I know exactly the fucking people who only call us when things are going well. So again, is that conscious on your part where if I decide someone's talented and, forgetting that we're friends, where you're like, if I decide someone's eventually gonna be successful at this or they're talented, I'm gonna
1: make it a point to be there when it's shitty? I I think part of it is um, having grown up in such isolation, you just learn to keep your own counsel. It's all you have. So, Brilliant. when I make friends, they're my friends. I don't care what anybody else thinks. If I think someone's talented because I like something, I don't. It doesn't go away because they maybe tried something that didn't work. It never occurred to me to be that reactionary, not because I'm – like, I sweat it in my job. I want movies to not bomb. I have anxieties, but I don't care what – I truly don't care what other people think. I really never have – at least when it comes to movies, I – sometimes in my personal life, I care too much about how, sure, how sure. I'm regarded. But when – I don't know. I, I just feel like it if, – if you only judged people by their last movie, Curtis Hansen would never have gotten 8 Mile. You know, like, Andy Davis never would have made Fugitive. Like, it's just, you can't, talent does not work that way. And I also think sometimes once a movie star, always a movie star. Quentin Tarantino, a genius Tarantino. Travolta had never stopped being a movie star. Just people, there's a wonderful documentary, The Lost Interview with Steve Jobs. And it was made by a guy who used to work for Steve at Apple the first time. And then Steve, this documentary was was shot when uh, Steve Jobs was at Next Computers. Yes. Have you seen this thing? Uh. Yeah. Uh- I don't know. I saw a weird okay. documentary, but I know that okay. time period. I yeah. know of it. Yeah. So the, the interviewer asked Steve Jobs, listen, uh, why do you think your, your old company Apple and Dell and IBM and Hewlett Packard have fallen on hard times? Sales are down. You know, what do you think is going on? And he said, when you put marketers and lawyers in charge of a creative enterprise, innovation dies because all they want to do is sell what's worked before and the, con- the consumer moves on. And I thought he could have been talking about Hollywood ten times over. It's too reactionary. You can't just want to sell what's worked before or judge people you know, based on the, the previous work. You have to look at the t- totality of their whole contribution. And you have to innovate. It's my favorite line from Moneyball, adapt or die, Brad Pitt says. Yes.
0: Yes. That makes complete sense, mm-hmm. Mary. Just a couple last things. Why, after this time as a producer and being such a successful producer. And being a producer means you're on your own and taking your own counsel. You don't really, you know, you have various different studios you can do deals with, tons of filmmakers you can work with. Why take the job as chairman of MGM Film? What, what is it about being a studio head that's calling you back?
1: I, uh, on a personal level, you know, as a producer, there are a lot of relationships I can't access because a lot of people that I want to make movies with have producers. I'm just limited to how many things I can do with the people that I'd love to do things with. And uh, I wasn't a I wasn't a big producer with a fancy discretionary fund. You know, it was a first look deal, traditional first look deal where Universal would have to agree to something, and then if they didn't, I'd take my chances. You know, with other studios, and uh, I just couldn't. I wanted to do more. And the one thing I can do as a studio executive is offer more things to more people, be a home base for more of the filmmakers that I have relationships with. And um, I, I always, it always bugged me that I never felt like I really um, got a head of steam going at DreamWorks. So that that pinched me a little bit in the back of my head. I'm like, gee, I'd like another shot at it. And then, you know, Amy offered me a shot at Sony, but then we got hacked by North Korea and that kind of got preempted, but, you know, through circumstances I couldn't control. And then uh, perfectly happy producing, but then... You know, MGM came to me and told a really good story of wanting to ramp up, and that that mission statement always gets me. You know, like it, it kind of always mean inspires me. the idea of hey,
0: we can go be like go Warner Brothers in the 70s,
1: or, the modern version yeah. of that. Um, I I don't know if I, if if that exists anymore, but they thought, and I agree that there's a lane open right now to take original swings with stuff because. You know, it's a weird time in the business in terms of adaptation. You know, the the streamers have caused like a seismic shift in how projects are adjudicated. And it seems counterintuitive to, you know, get into a situation where things must work theatrically in movie theaters. And that is, I was going to ask you, so your thing is pure movie theater play, but not only tent poles, right? Yeah, I mean, we don't own a lot of branded IP except for James Bond, which we do with Eon Productions and, you know, the Creed franchise now, thanks to uh, Erwin Winkler and Stallone. Um, The brilliant Ryan Coogler. And the brilliant Ryan Coogler, yes, of course. So it leaves a lot of opportunity for original swings, and I still believe in, you know, movies for movie theaters. Uh, And I was very impressed with the release of Ford Ferrari and Hustlers and Knives Out, and, you know, my goal is to create kind of a haven for those kind of movies I don't buy that it's the twilight of movie theaters or that we have to cede originality to Netflix just by attrition because the studios are nervous about taking original swings well I I saw an opening I don't know if I'm right but I'll give it a shot
0: I can't wait to see the original swings that you take and um, thanks for being here man thanks for doing this thanks for um, it's such a pleasure the support over all the years and uh, I remember once you were at one studio I won't say where And you guys offered us a deal to write something and our agents were negotiating. And you made uh, a call to just the two of us and you said, here's the thing. I'm not going to say the numbers, but you said, uh, at X number, my bosses have to approve of the deal. X minus 3% (laughs) and I can just do it myself. So you guys should just tell your agents to close at that number and then we can just do it and no one ever has to know. And uh, it was a time when we really needed the money, and it was such a great favor. Oh. And, you know, I mean, I, you didn't do it to, as a, a no. favor, but it was like- Clearly, uh, I believed in it. I just, why torture the process? Yes. <laughs> why torture the process? Yeah. It was very clear that uh, uh, you were trying to say, look, I believe in this and I want to do it, but if if I have to take it to these other guys, they might not get it. Right. So <laughs> let's, let's not blow the thing. Oh, and I do think that, you know, let's not blow the thing over- uh, You know, a a few thousand dollars was like a really great sort of Mike DeLuca thing. And a lot of people wouldn't make that call. They'd feel like it was, I don't know, stepping over the lines or, you know, you're revealing yourself to us, exposing yourself in
1: that particular job. But you were willing to do that. I think the, you know, if you can be vulnerable and honest in situations, uh, people meet you more than halfway. And you guys certainly met me more than halfway. Well, that's for sure. Those are stories for not on the microphone.
0: <laughs> All right. Oh, Mike Luke thanks for being here. You can find me uh, at Brian Koppelman at Twitter. Uh, you can email me at the moment, bk, at gmail.com. Mike, I can't wait to see the movies that you make.
1: Thank you, man.